Hello and welcome to Weber Wenzel's Competition Trade and Investment Insight Series vidcast made in collaboration with Africa Legal. I'm your host and moderator, Yael Shafrir. I'm a member of Weber Wenzel's Competition Trade and Investment Team. I'm a trade and investment lawyer with a special interest in FDI, Africa-related investments, investment promotion, and the AFCFTA. In this vidcast, our team of competition trade and investment experts will share their knowledge and insights on some of the CTI hottest topics, FDI trends, the AFCFTA, public interest considerations for merger filings, key policy developments in the trade space, and where we stand with investment promotion across the continent. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by members of our competition trade and investment team to discuss Africa's ever-changing competition trade and investment landscape. I'm firstly joined by one of our partners, Sarah McKenzie, who specializes in international and domestic commercial and treaty arbitration, as well as high-profile regulatory international trade and commercial litigation. She has represented parties in many domestic and international arbitrations, including under the auspices of the ICC, ICSID, AFSA, the Chinese Arbitration Association, as well as under UNCATROL. Thank you, Sarah. We also joined by Weber Wenzel partner and competition and consumer protection expert, Burton Phillips. Welcome, Burton. Burton has experience in advising on all competition law aspects of transactions from due diligence and reviews to engagements with the competition authorities and the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition for SACU. Finally, Matthew Poole, a senior associate in our competition trade and investment team. Matthew has experience in various trade remedies, including general tariff increase and decrease applications applications for anti-dumping duties, and general and safeguard applications. Matthew also has experience in general trade advisory work, including World Trade Organization law. Welcome, Matthew. Well, it's a pleasure to have all, you here, all of you here today to discuss Africa's CTI landscape. Let's dive right in. Sarah, let's start with you. We're seeing increased trends in FDI across Africa what, in your view, is the investor due diligence that needs to be considered when investing across the region and what types of protection are available? Over to you, Sarah. Hi, Anne. Thanks very much. Um, well, of course, it's very important for any investor investing in a different state to understand the legal and regulatory landscape that they're investing into. At a broad level, um, you need to understand what laws are going to affect your investment this, of course, depends on the type of investment you're making. Um, but, for example, labor laws, consumer protection laws, competition laws, local content laws and the like. Um, and then it's a very important to figure out um, what kind of investment protections are going to be available to you in order to ensure that if something does go wrong and your investment isn't treated as, as one would hope, um, that you have some kind of remedy available to you. So here we're talking about both substantive protections and procedural protections. In relation to substantive protections, um, you've got to look at the local legislation in place. Um, in South Africa, for instance, there's a Promotion and Protection of Investment Act that provides some substantive protections. Um, and you'd also want to look at what kind of treatment treaties are available to you. So investment treaties, those can be both bilateral or multilateral. 
and the types of protections afforded under those treaties. Now, of course, when you're assessing what treaties uh, you might fall within the realm of, you've got to assess um, the, the nationality of, of the investor, and that can depend in, to a huge extent on, on the type of investment made and what kind of holding companies it's made through. So there we often look at structuring for clients um, and, and we assess what, what protections are available depending on which type of nationality um, we're going to be relying on. The types of treatment um, protections that you might expect to find in, in either local legislation or in treaties uh, are things like most favored nation treatment, which um, says that the investment can't be treated any less favorably than um, an investment from any other state. Um, national treatment, which says that the investment can't be treated less favorably than um, then investments from um, local investors are, are treated. Fair and equitable treatments, repatriation of profits, um, physical protection of the investments and the like. Once you've got all these um, protections in place and, and you know what, um, what standard of treatment you're going to be, um, your, the state you're investing into is going to be held to, you've also got to understand how you're going to be able to enforce um, those substantive rights. And in order to assess that, um, we often look for clients at um, the type of dispute settlement mechanisms available under the local laws or the investment treaties. Those could include state-state um, um, arbitration or mediation, uh, mediation between the investor and the host state, um, being able to rely on procedures in local courts, um, and um, hopefully investor state dispute settlement. Now that's become quite a controversial term over the last few years, but essentially it's a mechanism in quite a number of investment treaties that allows investors to arbitrate directly against host states. Um, and, and it's become controversial for a number of reasons, but among them is, is that states feel that they don't have um, sufficient space to regulate in the public interest because of this um, fairly comprehensive procedural right that's available to investors. The other thing we look at is whether the host state is a member of the New York Convention. Um, the New York Convention creates um, obligations on states to enforce foreign arbitral awards. So if you do have an award against a state flowing from a breach of your investment protection rights, you want to be able to enforce it both in, in the host state and in any state that um, the host state may have assets in. So we we regularly advise on doing that analysis as well. Quite interesting, Yale, in relation to kind of due diligence processes and, and what we advise is that a number of tribunals in investment protection cases have, have actually recently required that an investor have completed a due diligence of the local laws in order to rely on a fair and equitable treatment standard. And that's because um, all the reasoning is that um, in order to, to say that your legitimate expectations have not been met um, or have been breached, you need to have some legitimate expectations. And in order to do so, you need to have really understood what the legal landscape is. Um, so, so it's important to be able to show that you did do some kind of due diligence when making an investment in order to rely on those types of protections as well. Now, of course, the, the, the nature and content of, of that due diligence is not something that um, has necessarily been defined. Um, and, and so it's quite a nebulous concept, but, but certainly some form of investigation into local laws um, that are likely to affect your investment, it really is critical. 
Um, and then, of course, it, it's it's always worth considering the political risk that you're facing when you're making an investment, and and it may well be worth looking at the types of political risk insurance that may be available to you. Thanks so much, Sarah. I mean, that really was a very comprehensive whirlwind tour of the types of issues that investors need to be alive to. I mean, I think just to sort of reinforce what you're saying, we're also seeing increasingly a focus on due diligence across the continent, in both on the risk and the opportunity side. I mean, from an AFCFTA perspective, from an opportunity perspective, I think clients are want to do far more of a deep dive into the types of tariffs, incentives, rebates, special economic zones that they may face in their sector in specific jurisdictions. As you said, we're also seeing a lot more focus on risk type political country risk due diligence. Whereas historically, I think investors may have been scared off by some jurisdictions. I think now they're going in with their eyes wide open. I mean, they, they're doing proper due diligence. And what we also seeing a far more holistic, multidisciplinary assessment. So we work with other types of advisors, albeit risk advisors, when we look at political risk. Um, yeah, and we seeing the area of due diligence just becoming a lot broader. I think, you know, whereas traditionally used to have quite a set area of due diligence, I think it's becoming a lot broader in terms of, like we said, not just political, but also looking at employee due diligence is becoming very important. Um, tariffs, um, anti-bribery and corruption is a key area which clients are looking at, and very much sanctions. I mean, I think clients have become very sensitized to EU and OFAC sanctions, and similarly, they want to make sure that, you know, they, they're looking at this area when they're investing in Africa. So thanks, Sarah. Um, moving on, uh, Burton, I think one area which has come up pretty regularly these days is the area of public interest. And I'm very, very interested to hear your thoughts on what type of public interest considerations are we seeing being imposed in merger filings? Thanks, Jael. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly there have been a significant number of developments recently from a public interest perspective. Um, and, and that is on the back of uh, a number of decisions in which the, the both the Commission and the Tribunal have paid a lot more attention to public interest in the context of, of merger regulations. Um, you, you may know that um, our Act uh, mandates the competition authorities to consider competition factors as well as public interest factors um, when assessing uh, a merger and, and, and approving a merger. And ultimately, uh, it may recommend certain conditions to address both competition or public interest factors uh, if, if such concerns arise. Um, or, or may even prohibit transactions on the basis of competition or public interest concerns. And, and a lot of this, um, or, or, or really sort of the, the, the turning point um, from a public interest perspective, if, if one could see it that way, was, was the Burger King decision, which was really the first decision where a prohibition was in fact based purely on public interest grounds. And I think that really elevated um, the, the public interest factors anew. Um, we do, of course, have the Competition Amendment Act, which makes it clear that uh, public interest uh, factors are not to be considered on par with, with competition uh, factors. So, I mean, it has resulted in us as competition practitioners becoming public interest lawyers, um, which I think is a, is a, is a good thing, uh, expanding our knowledge, of course, um, but also opening up areas uh, for us to get involved 
in more of the sort of political landscape, uh, and, and to Sarah's point, understanding some of those elements that, that are relevant, of course, to, to merger control. Um, so, so, so perhaps that's you know something to just bear in mind as a as an opening opening remark um, on on the specific public interest elements and and conditions that we've seen. Of course, historically, uh, and you can see this trend coming out in many tribunal decisions and murder approvals. Uh, employment has been a significant uh, factor for the commission and still is. Um, job scarcity, the level of unemployment, is of course a significant concern in a country like ours. And of course, that will remain a concern for the Commission and one which the Commission will continue to try and address through merger conditions. So for investors coming in, I think it's very important, perhaps even as early as the due diligence stage, to start looking at what are the potential um, areas for, for a transaction to have an impact on employment. Um, that is not necessarily limited to traditional thinking around potential job losses as a result of duplication, uh, it could even be down to whether employees need to be relocated, whether there will be changes, substantive changes in, in employee contracts or, or, or terms of employment. And those are the kind of things that, that the Commission is, 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 is delving into. It's, it's looking at uh, the effect on employees relative to whether it's on a sort of management level versus, uh, uh, um, you know, sort of lower level employees, uh, which I think is, is, is obviously where where the concern arises. And so on the back of that, a lot of the conditions that we've seen from an employment perspective relates to the, obviously the prevention of, of, of job losses, uh, moratoriums on retrenchments for a certain period of time to the extent that such retrenchments can't be avoided. We've also seen uh, conditions that speak to providing training, um, uh, establishing a support fund for employees that, that may be affected uh, affected by, by, by transactions. Um, and and that I think has, has, has come out and, and a lot of uh, uh, parties investing in South Africa are actually now looking at, at, at making those sort of transactions part, uh, or those sort of public interest conditions part of the transaction upfront and, and say, look, we're coming in. This is what we're going to be offering from a public interest perspective, um, from an employment uh, perspective, you know, of course, to reinforce the importance of, of public interest. You know, that's not, of course, to say that every single transaction justifies uh, you you positioning it in, in that way. And of course, one would need to consider exactly what public interest impact the transaction may have. So that's employment. The, the other big one, which I think is a, is, a, is a critical one, particularly if one looks at it from the perspective of, of FDI, is, is the impact of, of transactions on uh, shareholdings held by historically disadvantaged persons. Um, and, and that is, uh, at the moment, um, Quite a quite a, a important factor for the commission. Uh, almost in every transaction that we're seeing um, notified to the commission, this is coming up, um, and 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 there's there's various views uh, around what the impact should be, whether it is sufficient for a transaction to be purely neutral from a from a public interest perspective, or whether in fact a transaction should promote a greater spread of ownership by a historically disadvantaged person persons. In fact, the latter interpretation seems to be one which the authorities may be leaning towards because that is that's sort of the wording of, of the Amendment Act. Uh, and, and one would imagine, you know, coming in, uh, you know, as a foreign investor, there may be an element to which um, one needs to, to take into account whether the business that you're, you're investing in uh, has a percentage of, of shareholding held by historically disadvantaged persons and whether as a result of such investment that percentage shareholding might reduce or whether you would want to keep that intact or whether you may want to consider partnering with um, 
a historically disadvantaged shareholder from the outset, um, uh, you know, as, as a means to, to one, obviously, you know, speak to the public interest mandate, uh, you know, but obviously that uh, also has other consequences for, for the business and your appetite to, to engage in the transaction, uh, particularly from a, from a structuring perspective. So, I mean, I, I would say those are the two, two key ones. Um, the others that we're seeing also relates to, uh, you know, a level of protection over local supply, local procurement, um, investments being made in, in the supply chain. Uh, and, and that's really to, to, to ensure that um, the local industry remains intact um, or is improved. Uh, and, and so we've seen the commission often in, in, in big conglomerates or, or foreign transactions uh, impose conditions that speak to you know, protecting the local supply chain and, and adequate investments being made in the in the local supply chain to ensure that there's no significant impact uh, from from that perspective. So, so those are for me, I think, the key ones from a from a FDI perspective. Thanks, Bert, and that's really interesting. I mean, there is just one question that came to mind, and I just thought I'd throw it out there because obviously we're looking at the Dupont trade industry and competition from a SACU perspective. I mean, what are we seeing similar trends across the continent? I mean, I know you do a lot of uh, competition work also across the continent. I mean, just, just throwing it out there, was this quite uh, region-specific from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very good point and, 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 and you know, something important to, to bear in mind because we often deal with transactions that might primarily be a South Africa-based transaction, but because of the fact that the parties to the transaction also generate revenue or, or control assets in, in, in other jurisdictions that it triggers approvals there. Um, you know, historically, uh, you know, South Africa has been the sort of outlier in, in its focus on public interest, particularly around, around employment. But we are seeing this trend more and more in, in, in other jurisdictions. So it certainly is no longer unique to South Africa. Um, in, a, in a number of transactions, uh, we've encountered authorities looking at, at public interest in some jurisdictions, uh, for example, you know, we take transactions in Zambia, you actually have to, to make certain submissions up front around uh, employment uh, impact around the public interest in Zambia. They may have differing factors as to what they consider to be uh, public interest uh, elements to, to a transaction, but certainly, you know, the public interest uh, aspects are there. Um, I mean, we've seen uh, decisions coming out of Botswana, for example, where conditions that speak specifically to employment, uh, as well as local supply, have been imposed in transactions. So, so I mean, very good point, and certainly something that is uh, in, in, in an increased focus for competition authorities uh, on, on the continent, and certainly not, not unique to South Africa. Thanks, Burton. So public interest is here to stay. Um, moving over to you, Matthew, I think staying with the area of, of policy, and I'm just quite curious in your work, what are you seeing are the policy areas that the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition is looking into? What are the trends that we're we experiencing? Thanks, yeah. And uh, I think from an industrial policy perspective, it's very similar to what Burton's just covered. Um, so... Broadly speaking, the two most important policy considerations are going to be employment and investment. Uh, so both uh, the International Trade Administration Commission and the DTIC uh, want to know that applicants uh, for protective measures from them, uh, such as tariff increases, 
are committed to investment in the South African and more broadly speaking, the Southern African customs union economies. Uh, so this involves uh, often in an application, for example, for a tariff increase, uh, upfront you need to make certain commitments regarding either job creation uh, or job retention. And those commitments often include for, for specified categories, such as youth unemployment, which is obviously quite an, uh, quite an important one in our country. Uh, you also have to make commitments on investments in capital expenditure. Uh, so either increasing, uh, increasing your production capacity, making sure that you can, you can meet demand, and then also investments in skills development and training for your employees, uh, research and development into new products to increase your competitiveness. Uh, and uh, similarly also to what Burton mentioned, uh, you have to commit to support participation in manufacturing uh, by small businesses, uh, black owned or black managed enterprises and common customs area supply chains. So not only South Africa, uh, but also our, our neighboring countries. Thank you, Matthew. Um, so I think, Sarah, before we move into a more sector-focused discussion, I think it would be good to kind of take a moment and kind of if you could share with, with us where we stand with regards to the current status of the investment protocol under the AFCFTA. Sure, Yale. Um, so, so the African Continental Free Trade Agreement investment protocol is still being negotiated. We do see it, however, as a critical component of Africa's success. Um, of course, with increased trade and investment comes an increased need to ensure that investments are fairly treated. And as I mentioned earlier, there, there are a whole bunch of components to that. Um, the investment protocol, of course, would um, essentially form a fairly comprehensive multilateral investment treaty um, that affords investors throughout the continent um, substantive and procedural protections. Um, there has been a fairly inconsistent approach to investment protection on the continent until now with various overlapping treaties which provide different standards um, and different approaches being taken by different states on the continent. Uh, some of the key negotiation points um, that we, we think are, are probably critical in, in what's going on um, at state level is um, the investor-state dispute settlement question. As I mentioned earlier, that's become a fairly controversial topic uh, globally with questions around its legitimacy. Um, we also think that some of the substantive protections are likely to be hot topics in the negotiations, including um, the fair and equitable treatment standard, which is relatively nebulous and um, often relied on by investors, but hard to pin down a precise definition of. Um, and, and the question around whether there should be various requirements on investors in order to get treaty protection. So um, have the investors complied with local laws? Um, are they contributing to, to the economy? Um, are they protecting and promoting human rights and, and the like? Uh, some states uh, have opted recently to do away with investor state dispute settlements um, in relation to their the investment protection regimes going forward, South Africa among them. Um, and there's, there's a key concern among many African states about whether they have sufficient ability to regulate in the public interest. Uh, there's hope for harmonization, I think, flowing from the investment protection protocol. And, and we, we are hoping to see a strong but consistent approach that can be applied across the continent coming out of these negotiations. 
Um, there have been various developments which give us some clues in relation to what the, the protocol may ultimately look like. The first is the Pan-African Investment Code, um, which is a non-binding um, instrument that the African, African states have adopted. Uh, in relation to investor state dispute settlement, the hot topic I've, I've referred to a number of times, um, the compromise reached among African states in the, in the code was that there wouldn't be compulsory investor state dispute settlement. And um, this has been left um, to the discretion of African states. Similarly, in the SADC Finance and Investment Protocol, no investor state dispute settlement um, flowing from, I think, a fair amount of pressure from from South Africa um, in relation to the policy um, policy decisions that we have been taken um, here. Um, but we have, in fact, seen what's referred to as the zero draft of the investment protocol. Um, and, and although it's, it's certainly no, no final um, version, it does give us some clues about what, what the final draft may ultimately look like. Um, interestingly, the zero draft contemplates the termination of all intra-African bilateral investment treaties, which of course would go some way towards the harmonization that we're hoping to see. Uh, it leaves out the fair and equitable treatment standard, instead um, opting for um, a question of due process in relation to administrative and judicial treatments. It makes it very clear that state parties will have the right to regulate in the public interest in order to achieve, achieve sustainable development goals and other socioeconomic policy objectives, um, which I think is, is a very welcome addition. And I think will give a lot of state parties a huge amount of comfort. Uh, it does include um, those investor requirements in relation to human rights, compliance with the law and the like, and also includes an option for um, counterclaims and investor liability, which I think is also something that um, host states have been quite interested in achieving. There is, interestingly, investor state dispute settlement in the zero draft, so we'll see where that lands up. Um, I think that is likely to be um, a topic that will continue to be negotiated going forward. But of course, consensus is necessary. So I think what's, what will ultimately come out of the negotiation is some kind of middle ground. Um, and, and of course, a, a critical middle ground for the success of, of this free trade agreement. Thanks, Sarah. That, that, I think that'll give investors, the zero draft should give investors, you know, some comfort, you know. And I think my view personally is that this increased governance is going to be a key driver in terms of driving FDI into the continent. So, and also seeing the introduction of the SDGs, you know, I think all of this will go a long way to, to giving increased comfort to investors. So I think I'd like to move on to transition to a sector-focused discussion. Um, and maybe starting off with some of the key sectors that we've seen the AFCFTA Secretariat focus on and prioritize. Um, and these very much align with where we're seeing a lot of the activity. Uh, so one of them is, is automotive, but not just automotive, also mobility in general. I mean, we've seen a lot of activity in the two and three-wheeler space, you know, generally public transport e-hailing and the prospect of EV. So this is going to be an interesting space to watch. Agribusiness and agri-processing. I know that we're seeing a lot of activity in that space. Um, healthcare and pharmaceuticals. And clearly COVID was a key driver in terms of, you know, the, the continent wanting to become self-sufficient in this area. Um, and then finally, transport and logistics. 
So I think, Matthew, I'd like to turn to you and ask you from your perspective and in your practice, which sectors do you see getting particular attention? Thanks, yeah. Um, so obviously one major sector uh, over the past few years in, in the Southern African Customs Union has been the steel sector. So we've seen for, for several years now a number of applications being brought by domestic industries um, for increased protection. So that's a form of that increases in ordinary customs duty. There have been several safeguard measures and also applications for anti-dumping measures. Uh, but what we're also seeing uh, in that in that sector is applications from downstream manufacturers for rebate provisions to ensure that uh, they have access to products that, that might not necessarily be produced uh, within the customs union. Um, so so they, they get access to those products uh, duty-free uh, whilst also uh, affording protection to, to the upstream producers. Uh, another major major sector that we see we see activity in is agriculture, uh, which is especially important uh, there because we need a, a strong domestic industry in order to maintain uh, regional food security, uh, which is which is obviously quite important for us. And then uh, we are seeing increasingly uh, from chemicals uh, and paper manufacturing industries, uh, as well as construction equipment and supplies and uh, small appliances. So a lot of uh, a lot of different uh, sectors across across the economy, um, where there is scope for for job creation and job retention. Thank you, Matthew. Burton, uh, anything to add from what you're seeing in um, in your competition practice? Yeah, yeah. I think I think very much in line with with what Matthew said. I think one of the the key indicators for us. Uh, is if you look at uh, the market inquiries that's been um, undertaken by the commission in recent times, there have been market inquiries in the healthcare space, um, in the LPG gas space. There's, there was the big market inquiry into uh, data and, and the price of data in, in South Africa. And there's currently the market inquiry that um, is looking into online intermediation services. So, I mean, that, that, that really sort of gives you a sense of where the commission's focus is, is lying. Um, I mean, there, there is an increased sense that the digital economy is one which, which the Commission will, will be focusing on. Um, in, in 2020, the Commission published a, a paper on, on um, competition in the digital market in South Africa, which, which really seemed to uh, be positioned as, as, as a blueprint for, for the Commission in terms of how it will tackle competition in, in the digital market. Um, I think there is, a, there is a sense of recognition that there may have been a level of a sort of under-enforcement uh, in, in, in that sector um, to date. Uh, and that is, I think, a function of how rapidly that market changes. I mean, technology changes almost, almost every day. And of, of course, for, for authorities to appropriately reg regulate that, that sector, it needs the tools, it needs the know-how, it needs the capacity to be able to do so um, uh, adequately. Um, and we've seen a number of, of, of key strategies set out by the Commission in terms of how it'll do that. One of which, as I've mentioned, is, is market inquiries. The Commission's also recently published guidelines on, on small merger notifications, which, which might lead to uh, you know, an increase of notifications to the Commission 
of, of mergers which, which otherwise would have escaped the scrutiny of the Commission uh, simply based on, on its size because the financial thresholds may have not been met. But often what happens is it might be a small merger which doesn't require mandatory approval, but part of that small merger, what's being acquired, is actually key technology or, or security interests which is of interest to the Commission and, and, and should be reviewed to ensure that, you know, on a long-term basis, there are no uh, significant impacts on, on, on the competition or, or public interest factors. So, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think, I think digital markets is, is going to be a key one for the Commission, not only for, for, for the authorities in South Africa. We have seen uh, a number of moves by, uh, by other competition authorities on the continent to collaborate with, 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 with the Commission in South Africa and other jurisdictions where, of course, these issues um, have already come up. I mean, you, one needs only to look at the US and the EU uh, to look at the number of cases, cases in which, you know, big te technological companies, your Facebooks, uh, Google, um, have been investigated uh, for, for practices around, you know, technology, etc. So, so there's a level of, I think, education that needs to happen uh, a level of upskilling that needs to happen on the part of the authorities, but also, you know, these issues are uh, in, in a lot of instances novel and change as the technology changes. So I think, uh, you know, that'll be an increased focus for, for some time to come from a, from a digital markets perspective. Thank you, Burton. I think, and thanks for highlighting that. I think in Africa, where we're seeing so much leapfrogging, um, I mean, digital, the digital space, you know, is going to be one to watch and definitely regulation in that space is an important one to watch also under the AFCFTA. Um, finally, Matthew, I'd like to turn to you and, and maybe just talk to us from a practical perspective, you know, what are the fair and unfair trade tools which are available to market participants? I think it'd be good for, to elaborate further in that area. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks, Yeah. Uh, sure. So when we're talking about uh, remedies that are available from a trade perspective, uh, we like to break it down into sort of sort of two groups. So we've got our, our tariff investigations and then our trade remedies. So both of these, uh, the investigations portion that's conducted by the International Trade Administration Commission, and the ultimate decision is made by the Minister of Trade, Industry and Competition, uh, following a recommendation from, from ITAC. So when we're talking tariff investigations, we're looking here at changes that affect generally ordinary customs duties. Uh, so that's a tax paid on goods entering the common customs area, that's a SACU. And these duties are used as trade and uh, industrial policy instruments uh, by the DTIC. And generally uh, they're used to promote domestic production, job retention and creation, and also international competitiveness. So if you are a domestic industry and you find yourself facing increased competition from imports, uh, you can approach uh, ITAC for an increase in this ordinary customs duty, provided, as mentioned earlier, you're willing to, to make commitments on investment and on employment. On the other side of this, uh, where there is no domestic industry or where the domestic industry doesn't produce a particular product, um, interested parties, so downstream users or importers, uh, can approach ITAC and apply to either to have the duty reduced or removed uh, if there is no domestic industry at all, or for rebate provision to be created where there is a particular product that is not available uh, within, the, within the common customs area. 
Um, we've got, uh, as DTIC, they've got quite a wide uh, a policy range they can consider here. And really the only international restrictions is uh, our commitments to the WTO, not to raise those duties above a, a certain rate. Uh, the trade remedies side, um, we generally uh, see two types of trade remedies. Uh, so you've got anti-dumping duties and you've got safeguard measures. So broadly speaking, anti-dumping duties are available where you've got a foreign producer that is selling a particular product at a lower price um, in, uh, in the SACU market, uh, then it sells it in its uh, domestic market. Uh, so that's that practice of, of selling in your export market at a lower price, that, that's what we call dumping. Uh, and the, the second and third requirement is that, that that dumping must also cause or threaten to cause material in injury to a domestic industry. So the domestic industry would bring an application to ITAC, ITAC would carry out its investigation. Um, if they find that there is injurious dumping, uh, duties can then be put in place uh, to offset that dumping. These duties are uh, company and country specific, uh, and they're often in place uh, for a period of five years, unless uh, there's a review of those duties before the end, um, which concludes that the removal would lead to a continuation or recurrence of dumping, in which case the duties can be extended for a further five years. Um, that's, that's what we call, that's an unfair trade remedy, but there's also a fair trade remedy, uh, which is a, a safeguard measure. Great. Thanks so much, Matthew. And I think thanks so much for highlighting, you know, as we're looking at the importance of the industrialization of the continent, so hand in hand goes the importance of enhancing and protecting industry from unfair trade. Um, so I think it's really important to, to kind of, you know, make people aware of the types of tools that are available. Um, so I wanted to close this off now and thank you, Sarah, Burton and Matthew so much for this very practical and informative discussion of the key hot topics in the competition trade and investment space. Thank you so much also to Africa Legal for partnering with us and have a great day. Goodbye, everyone.